Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. And one of the things you're going to hear about throughout this series is how Matthew and how the Sermon on the Mount kind of equals or reflects uh, the Ten Commandments and Moses going up on the mountain and Moses delivering God's word to his people and so forth. So listen for those connections that you'll hear in the weeks to come. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before all, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, back in 2009, my wife and I joined 12 other members of our congregation in Chilliwack for a trip to Israel. And what an incredible trip that one. On that trip, I picked up two pebbles from two different places we had visited, and I deliberately carried them with me in my pockets for a while as we toured. One pebble, a rather ordinary one, came from the creek bed of the Allah Valley. Mean anything to you? That was the site of the battle where David killed Goliath, the giant Goliath. Remember, David picked up five stones from that creek bed uh, to arm his slingshot. And we walked that bed and that valley. The second pebble was a piece of marble from King Herod's palace at Caesarea, another place we visited. Now, it's Probably not a good idea for everyone going to Israel to do such things, to pick up stones and take them away, because over time there's going to be nothing left, and I'm sure that they frown about that kind of thing, but I didn't really think about that at the time. You're caught up in the moment. Anyway, the pebbles are not very impressive as such, and they could have almost come from anywhere, and in and of themselves, they really have no importance. But what's important is what they represent. They represent two kingdoms, 
as it were. The marble pebble represented the spirit of Herod's age, a spirit, spirit that he swallowed hook, line, and sinker, so to speak. The spirit of the age, or the Greek or Hellenistic worldview, said that human beings are the measure of all things. Man is the source of everything and is most important. He is self-sufficient and he is dependent on no one. He's the source of life, of hope, of all things. People are to be celebrated and life is to be enjoyed. Eat, drink, and be merry for you only go around once in life. That was the world view. And such a world view was shown and lived itself out in everyday society. And so while in Israel we learned and saw firsthand that the symbols of the Hellenistic worldview included theaters, where plays were played, putting man at the center of it all. We saw temples to man-made gods, gods created God's created for human purposes. There were gymnasiums and stadiums and public baths and wide streets and all sorts of marketplaces. In a Hellenistic world, human beings stand on top of the heap. People are the source of life and hope and the like. And the result of the glorification of the human being is that if a person doesn't quite measure up, that is to say, if they're flawed in some way or they can't keep up, then they're considered people of lesser value and quality. And sometimes people that really can be kind of disregarded and done away with. Now, as we heard more and more about the Hellenistic humanistic approach to life as it existed in Jesus' day, we couldn't help but draw the conclusion that our society and our world today is perhaps not that different. As we think of theaters and gyms and stadiums and wide streets and so forth, and as we think about our society's approach to life, one can only wonder if we've bought into the humanistic approach to the world, hook, line, and sinker. So as we were studying all this stuff, Bart Den Boer, who was then a Bible teacher at Holland Christian Schools in Holland, Michigan, and one of the teachers on our trip, gave us a very specific example of how we may have bought into that Hellenistic world-like view. He mentioned that his high school basketball team had won the state championship in Michigan. And once the game was over and victory was theirs, he said they, like many a championship team is wont to do, played the song we are the champions by the rock group Queen, a song that goes on to say, no time for losers, because we're the champions. We got no time for those losers. Now, such a song would be applauded by Herod, since it's a reflection of what he stood for in his Hellenistic mindset and humanistic approach to life, an approach that doesn't have time for losers. It's an approach that doesn't have time for anybody who is less than ideal. And he showed his true colors when he ordered the death of all the boys in Bethlehem, two years, age, uh, two years of age and younger, simply so he could protect his throne. He showed his true colors through the ways in which he treated his slaves. 
They were hardly considered people. Instead, they were objects to be used for Herod's purposes and to be discarded when no longer needed. And he killed a lot of them. Herod had no time for losers. Bart, the high school teacher, shuddered that a Christian high school would play such a song. After all, such is not the approach of the kingdom of heaven, as will become clear when we move through not only the Beatitudes, but also the rest of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, all the while that we were in Israel, our leaders kept pointing out the differences between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven, or the spirit of the age and the spirit of the Lord. One flourishes, one doesn't. And it was fascinating, and it's always fascinating, to see the remains of those who did not flourish. It was fascinating to see the remains of crumbled kingdoms, of Herod, of the Greeks, of the Romans, and others. All kingdoms that wielded a certain amount of power in their time. All kingdoms that somewhere along the line figured that they were invincible. And yet, while they may have flourished for a time, in the long run, they didn't last. They did not survive. And now one simply goes to see the ruins and try to remember what it was like. How many kingdoms, empires have come and gone over the centuries of human history. Many, even some in our lifetime, like the Soviet Union. All of this is so different from the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that is in Daniel's vision began as a tiny rock rolling down a mountain but grew and grew like a snowball picking up more and more snow as it rolls until the rock covered the entire earth and destroyed all the kingdoms of the world. And on our trip we were constantly reminded of the distinction between the Hellenistic or human approach to life and the approach to life of the kingdom of heaven. We were reminded of the difference between those who were and are building their own kingdom and those who were and are building the kingdom of God. And of course, then through the end of the entire trip, we were asked and we were constantly challenged with the question as to which kingdom or which approach to life made the most sense or was the most desirable or wanted. The two approaches are very different, as we will see when we go through what Jesus taught in what's known as the Beatitude. <coughs> Which kingdom do you want? I remember walking up to the streams of Engedi and going up the mountain to Engedi, and at a certain point along the way, you turn back and you look back, and there's the Dead Sea shining and glimmering, and in the wilderness, it's wonderful to see all that water. But it's dead. It's deader than a doornail. Nothing grows in it in the Dead Sea. But in Engedi, the streams were flowing with living, living water. Which one do you want? Hellenism, humanism focuses on and celebrates humankind. The approach of kingdom people is one that focuses on or celebrates the Lord. And while kingdom after kingdom rises and dies, the kingdom of heaven flourishes and gives life. And really, that's what the Beatitudes are about. They're all about 
flourishing, blessed or happy or flourishing are those. As Jonathan Pennington writes in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, quote, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly in John 10. And says Pennington, by beginning his message with macronisms or happiness statements, Jesus follows squarely in the ancient tradition of Jewish sages who offered practical wisdom for living according to God's rule and reign. The Beatitudes are Jesus' answer to the human question about happiness, an answer given in the form of a series of promises and challenges. The Beatitudes, as they are known, are part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and they are, as it were, a series of truth statements from the Lord. Himself, concerning true happiness, Find it a minute. The Beatitudes, as they are known, are part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and they're a series of statements about, from Jesus about true happiness, or even better said, statements that teach us about living a God-glorifying life. True happiness, true contentment, you see, one's true well-being, according to the Bible, is living in harmony with the will of God. And each one of the Beatitudes is challenging and revolutionary, certainly in the context of Hellenism and humanism. Dr. William Barclay said that the Beatitudes take the accepted standards of the world and turn them upside down and inside out. The people whom Jesus calls happy, the world calls wretched. The people whom Jesus calls wretched, the world calls happy. And therefore, if you want to be truly blessed, blessed, the attitudes ought to be carefully listened to and followed. And when we hear the word blessed in each of these beatitudes, we're not talking about emotional happiness. We're not talking about our psychological well-being. Rather, when we hear the word blessed, we're talking about living in harmony, pure harmony with the will of God, which really is eternal life. At the same time, Scott McKnight says the Beatitudes offer a radical revisioning of the people of God. Remember what I just said. Beatitudes are an expression of blessedness or happiness or abundance. So in other words, if you want to flourish now and in the age to come, live as Jesus taught. That's the approach of the Beatitudes spoken against the backdrop of the prevailing philosophy of the age, both then and now. You know, sometimes we as preachers are criticized for not preaching a sort of pop psychology, in a sort of pop psychology way, namely giving you seven steps to being a good Christian parent, or giving you eight steps to a successful marriage, or telling you specifically how to tithe, or six steps to being financially successful from a biblical point of view, or what you ought to do in some given situations. 
Such an approach to preaching is popular. And it's not unbiblical, but ultimately it's really not very satisfying because it just makes us approach life from a doing perspective. Follow these steps and you will flourish. The sermons that we get the most responses to are those in which we tell you, well, we don't really tell you what to do, but we, which we, you kind of read it as we tell you what to do. Do this if you're a Christian. That's the sermons we get most responses to, and it's always, always been interesting to me. We're not saved by works, folks. That was a basic tenet of the Protestant Reformation. We are saved by grace because we are sons and daughters of a king. And so the preaching that we have chosen to do is more from a being perspective. Be Christ-like and you will flourish. Jesus did not give his disciples a list of steps to take so that his disciples could be successful in life. He was not the wealthy barber. Rather, Jesus showed his disciples who the people of God are. And they are, says Pennington, they are ones whose lives look like this beatitudinal way of being, much like Jesus himself. I prayed it this morning. You hear Pastor John often prays that we may be more and more transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. Well, if you live in the way that's laid out in the Beatitudes, you will indeed reflect Jesus. You see, Christianity is more about being than doing. It's more about our identity in Christ than it is about following a bunch of rules or steps. And of course, if we are Christians, if we call ourselves little Christians, if we use that terminology, then we ought to live accordingly. And living accordingly is living a beatitudinal life which reflects, reflects the values of the kingdom and the values of the king, namely Jesus. And what are the values of the kingdom of heaven? Well, they're found in the Beatitudes, and please understand, we could spend an entire sermon on each one of the Beatitudes, but we don't have that kind of time as we tackle, as we tackle the entire Sermon on the Mount before Lent. But we are going to go through the Beatitudes very short, very briefly, one at a time. And I trust that as we go through them, even as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come, you'll quickly come and easily see the difference between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of Christ. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, like as we were walking through Israel, ask yourself the question, which kingdom leads to life? Which kingdom leads to flourishing and to happiness and to a future? And is that where I find myself? So the underlying question is, of course, of which kingdom are you, are we a part How would you characterize the dominant messages of our time? And you can talk about this further in your groups or in your communities when you have lunch or wherever you're going to be. 
How would you characterize the dominant messages of our time? Well, Disney does a good job of that. Disney, you know, that film-making theme park giant, which has a powerful influence in our time, has a rather straightforward message sometimes referred to as the Disney Gospel. Just punch it into Google, the Gospel according to Disney, and you get it there, all kinds of pages. And the Gospel is this, it's simple. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Have faith in faith. Never give up. Dreams will come true. Good will be rewarded, and evil will be punished. There's no God in that. There's no Christ in that. How many times don't we hear the message, believe in yourself, you know, to dream the impossible dream, and it will, become, it will come true. All things are possible, and you'll get it because you deserve it. Those kind of messages proclaimed by many reality shows on TV and lots of sports figures and the lines flow out of mouth after mouth after mouth. Every time we watch the Olympic Games, we are reminded of the triumph of the human spirit and the abilities of those who dreamed and made the ultimate games and so forth. It's like almost everybody can go to the Olympics. How come you're not there? You haven't dreamed enough. Even after disasters, we hear about strength and resiliency and the human spirit, almost to the point where if someone is struggling, they don't really dare to say anything lest they be considered weak and flawed and of lesser value to others. Really, we have no time for losers in a world that triumphs the human spirit. If you have your Bibles open, look at the Beatitudes. One contrasting way of reading, reading the Beatitudes puts it like this. Verse 3. Blessed are the self-confident, for they can accomplish anything, says the world. Look at the kingdom of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are the excited, for they are doing awesome, says the worldly kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, we read in the kingdom of Jesus. Verse 5, the world says, blessed are those who do what they have to do to win, for they are unstoppable. Kingdom of Christ, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for success, for they will get it. Pray hard enough, believe hard enough, you'll get it. The kingdom of heaven of Christ says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are those who get even, for no one can push them around. The message of the world, the kingdom of Christ, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Verse 8, blessed are those who look good, for they'll impress others, says the world. The kingdom of Christ says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Verse 9, blessed are those who stir up the action, for they'll get lots of attention. The kingdom of Christ, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Verse 10, the worldly blessed are those who are safe, for they shall be comfortable. Whereas the kingdom of Christ, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You notice the differences, the different approaches? Self-confident, excited, do all they can to win, hunger and thirst for success, get even, look good, stir up action, be safe. You can come up with all kinds of examples to say, yeah, that's what life, indeed, that's what the world is like. And now think of the words, and I wish we could spend a whole lot more time on the Beatitudes, but think of the words that the Bible uses, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness' sake. I remember picking up and carrying the two pebbles from two different places, two kingdoms they represented by those two stones. One lays in ruins, Herod's kingdom, the kingdom of man. We are the champions, no time for losers. The other kingdom is alive and well and ever expanding the kingdom that proclaims come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Come to me, my children, sinful losers that you are. I have time for you. Experience my grace and my embrace and be encouraged as you partake of the bread and the juice, because I love you. And I gave my son for you, for the complete forgiveness of all your sins. Which kingdom do you want? Of which kingdom are you a part? Amen. Father in heaven, as we think about the kingdoms of this world and the heavenly kingdom, we recognize that they are so different from one another. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we have capitulated, and for the kinds of things that we do that don't show that we are identifying with the kingdom of heaven, but rather identifying with the kingdoms of this world, and we need your Holy Spirit. We're grateful, O oh Lord, that you have time for losers. Champions may not have time for them, but you do. And you embrace us all, and you invite us to the table. We are most grateful and most excited. Help us to flourish and help us to live for you, that you indeed may receive the glory 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.